In order for shame to be rendered powerless in our lives, we must be witness. We must be seen. Your gifting is going to seem like things that are just very obvious. They're going to seem like, well, everybody can be this welcoming. Everybody can see that moment where I just saw it. We're going to feel like anybody could do it. And that's what makes it your gifting. Watch how people avoid the face of somebody in need or asking who makes you uncomfortable. Every one of those faces reveal God. We have to remember our past and recount the things that God has done for us. And then that gives us faith to keep going to where he wants us to be. Hey guys, welcome back to the Incense Podcast. I am Blaine. And I'm Sam. And this episode is actually more of a scratch track. The idea is we want to make an episode on a harder topic, and we decided that we would actually just roll in and make the outline, have a conversation, and if it ended up going well, we we might air it. This is actually how a lot of my high school projects went. Yeah, we're actually, we're going to talk about high school a lot in this episode. Oh, no. The dark years. <laughs> so... One of the things that we wanted to do in the middle of 2020, before the election season really ramps up, before the next thing explodes, is do kind of the classic and sons orientation and go, pause. Person in the middle of the Battle of the Bulge in World War II. If you were in the Battle of the Bulge and all of a sudden— you were seeing uh, Nazi panzer tank divisions try to do Blitzkrieg again, and it was just you. And you were in the middle of Europe, and it was you versus tank, and why were you dug into a foxhole at Christmas time? It would be very disorienting, and it would be, it's classically easy to lose perspective of where you are in time, but if you could zoom way, 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 way out and go, Okay, the massive thrusts of this battle are this thing, that thing, those things over there. It would help you understand why there were Nazi tank divisions driving up to your platoon. Yeah, it sounds like a terrible episode of the uh, Imagination Station. Pull me out, Wit. It totally does. Pull me out. You know what it sounds like? It sounds like the ones where he's actually dying. Do you remember that? Yeah. And yeah, yeah. Oh, one right. of the ones. He's got like the guardian angel and he's in like the airplane. Yeah. And, out of one. and he doesn't realize that he's actually in a coma. He's right. not. He thinks he's in the machine. Yeah. That is a real niche reference for some of you guys. They really went meta with that episode, you know? That one kind of freaked me out. Yeah. They also, do you remember? I'm going to keep going on this track. <laughs> do you remember there was an audio episode of Adventures in Odyssey where Wit wanted to experience death and. He met his son who was killed in the Second World War, or maybe it was Vietnam, and we were all traumatized as seven-year-olds no. listening to like, whoa, this is really unnerving as they're trying to create an episode that changes your view of death, but actually really just forces a consideration of mortality on Seven-year-olds who are going to be immortal. No, I don't remember that episode. We listened to it uh, in your in your Dallas Cowboys themed room. <laughs> well, that your, could have been all of the episodes. Your, foo- your football theme. 
So what we want to do is talk about the major centuries-old forces that are expressing themselves in this moment and kind of remind you that, hey, actually, what you see isn't really new. It came from somewhere, et cetera, et cetera. Where are you in time? One of the things that I actually want to call attention to is the materialist versus the supernatural worldview and some of the interesting things that are happening there. I think a lot of people have said, uh-oh, myself included. Yeah, but now we're going to talk about the Clone Wars. Like from Star Wars? Yeah. Oh, good. The TV show. Oh, thank goodness. Things are going to stay safe. <laughs> and you and I were talking about how weird it gets, right? Where like, there are some very... <laughs> the, the show is amazing, and it goes from space battle, woo, Star Wars, to like several episodes on the way that bills get moved through the Senate, and I find myself so stressed out. Yeah. But then they dive into the nature of the Force in a way that's kind of disturbing, mm-hmm. right? Is that the point of this, though? Is the nature of the Force episode? A little bit. Uh, we're using the Clone Wars as like an interesting example. Oh. And go, what is the deal with the wills and this planet that actually is the force? And right. they take this thing that was just a mythic backdrop of the battle between good and evil, and they like aggressively dissect it like a frog on a table. Yeah, and, and make it something that you could actually like do or practice, or believe in. Yeah, it was interesting because, I mean, humanity has been teasing out the puzzle of existence and why things work since the beginning of time. And anyone that spent time in a philosophy class has been frustrated by that. You just sort of go back and back and back and back. But it was interesting is there's some trains of thought, there's some ways that things get played out, like in the example you gave for... uh, staying with Star Wars um, in The Last Jedi, where people just sort of follow things out to their end, but it doesn't actually, I don't know, it doesn't feel like honest in some way. It feels like morbid, and they're bringing their worldview to the table, and therefore they took two lefts when they should have taken a right and gone straight, if that makes sense. Yes, and (laughs) for sure. And one of the things that I noticed in Star Wars, which makes it example number one, is that it doesn't get less spiritual. Like, uh, George Lucas is ironically one of the old guard of the American materialists, where in episode one, he goes, the force? Oh, that's just microscopic organisms in your blood, right? That's like, that's sort of the enlightenment impulse in George Lucas of, it's not this cosmically significant thing. It's medichlorians. And then you have this counter uh, offered in the Clone Wars where it's like, no, it's actually deeply spiritual, and there are all kinds of spiritual creatures. And uh, one of the things here is to go, have you noticed the progressive spiritualizing of what would be the political left or the liberal parts of the West. 
For example, you know, The Atlantic ran an article in March that was, why is witchcraft on the rise, question mark? And, you know, your wife watched this video that was about the same topic that was like, why is there this explosion of occultic practice inside what would normally be secular cities? Want to know a really weird example? Mm, morbidly, yes. Uh, I don't know that we... We ever watched Scooby-Doo, so this one's going to be hard. Someone pointed this out to me recently. Oh. Uh, but you, you remember, like, the classic 70s and 80s Scooby-Doo series? Yes. And there would be, like, a ghost or a monster. Right, but it would always be a person. But it would always be a person. Right. And do you know what, you know what happens now in Scooby-Doo? It's actual monsters. It's an actual monster or an actual ghost. Or actual witchcraft. Yes. I didn't thought about that. Huh. Okay, this is important for... We're, we're going to go to another reason. I'm going to go to... I'm going to weave the tapestry here. Uh, one of the most disturbing stories in the book of Kings in the Bible. Second Kings, chapter 3. You know, it's so like, book of Kings is just like the decline into madness of Israel after the death of King David. And right at the beginning, Moab, which had been subdued and forced to pay tribute, revolts. And this battle is going to take place. And the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah decide to go out together. And the story ends in this disturbing way where a miracle is provided for Israel and Judah where God gives the armies water so they won't die of dehydration in the desert and then they start sacking Moab and it kind of looks like a classic great thumbs up conquest story mm. except here's the end 2 Kings 3 26 when the king of Moab saw that the battle had gone against him, he took with him 700 swordsmen to break through to the king of Edom, but they failed. Then he took his firstborn son, who was to succeed him as king, and offered him as a sacrifice on the wall of the city. The fury against Israel was great. They withdrew and returned to their own land. Yeah. So, one, it's disturbing, but also... Did you notice the supernatural conclusion of that story? No, they kind of they kind of move quickly through it or past it. But you see the implications. He sacrifices his son. Something happens. And there is an anonymous dark fury against Israel. Israel causing them to lose a battle that they were winning. Yes. So, uh, <laughs> let's just say that the original biblical worldview is a deeply spiritual worldview where the formative influence on the world is spiritual. Paul inherits that when he says our battle's not against flesh and blood. Like, don't forget who the enemy is. But for several hundred years, we have forgotten who the enemy is. And we've committed to material solutions. And then we roll into a season like this one and think that the problem is 
principally political disagreement and the frustrating immovability of the opposing side, whoever they are. Yeah, sorry, I'm, I'm distracted from the infant sacrifice story. <laughs> well, it's not an infant, actually. Okay. So. How is that different from God sacrificing Jesus? Why do we get uncomfortable with some sacrifices and not others? Oh, I mean, the sacrificial system is the thing that anticipates the sacrifice of Jesus. Right. The power of sacrifice to affect the nature of the world and then the necessity of self-sacrifice being a definitive twist. Right. And then perfection and imperfection in what it's trying to do, but... Yeah, right. No, I know. That's not, this is not the conversation we're having. I'm sorry, because it, it does connect to, like, we didn't immunize our kids because the vaccine is made from aborted fetal cells. And, like, abortions they knew were coming, and they kept the, the body as intact as possible, as alive as possible to get, like, all they could from this person. And I go to like, in a philosophy class, we'd have the debate of like the train car full of people and the baby. And you're like, no, you sacrifice one to save many. And you're like, oh, crap. Did I just say that like I'm ethically okay with using stem cells or I'm ethically okay with the king of Moab sacrificing his son who was probably going to die anyway if the city was sacked? Uh, This is why ethics is actually like a vain discipline. It's the discipline of self-righteousness of... Or it's the discipline of the tree of knowledge and good and evil. I know it is. It is a little bit. Can we for ourselves understand and master good and bad? And anyone who has been in an ethics class, how'd it go? Not great. (laughs) It's the most infuriating practice. Well, Susie's ethics class, they got drawn to a standstill these days. It was seven years ago, but it was her ethics class that there was so much disagreement and offense being taken that it was brought to silence in this med school program. So. For sure. So let me conclude this point really quickly. Over time, the West began to see the world as being principally materially determined. And we did an episode of Understanding How You're Feeling, but to go, if you have a headache in a church in most of the United States, you are dehydrated. There are very few enclaves in which you might have a curse on you or be under spiritual attack. This is The situation is made worse by the fact that the church in the West typically reacts against whatever's happening on the left. And there is a progressive spiritualizing of the left that's making the followers of Jesus freak out a little bit and not want to be a part of it, mm. which is too bad because it's the way that we do change the world is compete for the spiritual atmosphere. Which is too bad, huh? <laughs> it's, Understatement. Oh, it's... It's <laughs> <laughs> just too bad that we're doing that. That is too bad. Rats. Oh, man. Gosh darn. <laughs> Wouldn't you know it? Um, I had the privilege of witnessing a debate recently about a group of people, uh, and how you define them is largely a function of how you see the world, whether they were a mob or a demonstration or a group of activists or uh, yeah, visionaries. Yeah, yeah, sure. And they were trying to tear down 
a statue of Andrew Jackson because he was a slave owner. And the other thing, owning slaves— And one other thing. —was the first on a list of horrible things about Andrew Jackson. At first is a better word choice than last. I was going to say last. can be least, but like, no, that's a freaking huge deal. <laughs> yes. What I'm saying is that the list is big. Right. And he is famous for his refusal to follow the Supreme Court's decision to honor treaties made with Native Americans as being nationally binding. So the U.S. Supreme Court ruled, yes, we have to treat the Native American tribes as though they were a sovereign nation. and. We don't know that he said this, but he probably said, the courts have made their decision. Now let's see them enforce it. And he sent the army to send the Cherokee on the Trail of Tears. So, not a wonderful person. Let's go back to the statue, though, and go, it's really interesting that addressing the sort of idolatry of making a monument to a corrupt person is something that the— church would understand for the majority of its history. Mm-hmm. But now, for the most part, we go, ugh, that's so, it's just people being crazy, or what's that supposed to do? Or there's not spiritual power around a statue that's, you know, continuing to express influence on a region. Yes. There for sure is. Mm. That's like, One of the basic tenets of the Bible is that the things that humans do create effects and they have spiritual effects. Satan and his kingdom are looking for honor and for worship. So if you set up a monument to evil, you can be assured that some kind of spiritual power will come occupy it. Yikes. Yep. You know, I've been seeing this trend lately. Um... You heard of this thing called witches versus the patriarchy? No. It's a, it's a thing and it's gaining some momentum and traction and it is I think an attempt to paint political parties in certain ways. And so to be a woman of strength and authority who is fighting a system of oppression means that you should be a witch is the narrative that they are spreading. And you're like, oh, oh, that has some dangerous implications for all of the women in my world that are strong and want to fight systems of oppression. Okay. (laughs) So for, you know, 300-ish years, the West has become more and more materialist. The church, which lags behind culture somewhere between 50 and 100 years, is on that same train. And now the national train is turning, the progressive train is turning back to going, wait a second, wait a second. You can influence spirits? You can use the spiritual part of the universe to change the world, that is something to know about. And this this should be like a flare moment for, or this come to Jesus moment for the followers of Jesus of be like. And people that don't believe this, just, I'm like, like, whoa, 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 hang on. Where are you seeing this? I'd say, uh, go to Whole Foods, 
wander around, look at the magazines, look at the things they have in the self-care section. Go to a nursery that sells plants and wander around and see the things that they have up for sale. Yes, uh, go to an independent bookstore and browse the sections and see what you discover in the self-help and spirituality section or even see what you discover in the political progress and change section. Go on the Atlantic's website, use the search term witchcraft, read some of the articles about the development and the fact that uh, in Seattle, according to a coven website, they were acknowledging that the membership of, you know, like a group of a, a witch church is sometimes referred to as a coven. That might be some new jargon for our audience. Uh, is doubling every year. So that's exponential growth in sort of the larger Seattle region and go, (laughs) no, this is happening. It's relevant uh, as the church because we are actually meant to understand the interwoven spiritual and physical nature of reality and our own ability in Jesus to influence the two. And when we sort of abdicate that that position, someone else comes in to fill it. And without Jesus, we can rest assured it's going to incline towards darkness. So that is, in a nutshell, the material worldview versus the supernatural worldview. You can see that impulse and let's say the social unrest, where if you view the social unrest as an information problem, you may have a predominantly material worldview, right? Where you go, well, if the protesters had other facts, they would think differently because humans are primarily motivated by facts. Or, you know, if the Republicans would review the studies of inequality, they would think differently. And then you transition over to... Which is where, like, information is a piece of the thing, but it's not the entirety of the puzzle. For sure. If you transition over to the uh, sort of progressive spiritualizing of some of the left... They'll go, like, there are bad auras that circulate around sites of violence that shape human behavior and stuff like that, which is actually, it's sort of right. It's actually headed in the right direction. Well, yeah, you could hear somebody say the sentence, that's a dark city. And you don't need to know anything about that person. That person doesn't need to be a spiritual person in in a religious sense. A politician could say that. And you're like, what? That's talking about an aura. That's talking about the spiritual realm. And that's sort of attributing whatever goes down there to something beyond your control and sort of mystical without it actually being the spiritual world of the Christian ideology. Right, which is fundamentally spiritual. And it doesn't, it doesn't actually acknowledge the distinction between material and physical. They always overlap and intersect. The next one that we want to talk about has to do with two ways that people understand their relationship with 
sort of the entire world. And these are, these are loosely called nationalism and globalism. There's a social psychologist, Jonathan Haidt, H-A-I-D-T. He has a book called The Righteous Mind and explores sort of the field of human identity. But, you know, safe to say that it, if you go back f- long enough, I know we have some historians listening, so I'm not going to give you a specific date. <laughs> but there's a transition that happens over time. <laughs> Hi, David. From people being uh, tribal creatures to being national creatures, right? I don't know. <laughs> I genuinely do not know. Well, we can just think about like a tribal identity. Let's see, the Puritans fleeing 16th century England, they're a kind of highly insulated tribe where you could, you could tell a Puritan from across the street by the way they dress and talk and how they live and what they do. It well, is shouldn't a, that example be kind of tribe versus national because it would have been like the rest of the English? Yeah, exactly. And then you little tribe people? Right. The, but, but we like the word tribe again these days. Like a tribe gathers around a football team, gathers around a place. I, we, we're back on tribes and nationalism. Yeah. Well, and nationalism, when you talk about nationalism versus globalism, is actually sort of the mature expression of a tribal way of being. And let me just try to maybe frame this, and then we can talk about specific examples mm, yeah. a little more easily. Right. As countries get richer, they become more sympathetic to secular rational values, and they move away from survival values to expressive values. And that, you know, what that would look like is the military is an incredible example of survival values where everything is built on defeat the enemy, keep these men alive. Therefore, the values are loyalty, respect for authority, obedience, understanding of the functioning of the unit. Expressive values is like a college campus where the most popular kid is often the biggest outlier who has some like, who has just nailed that inner self-expression, something that's unique in himself or herself to bring to the rest of the campus. Oh, there was this guy, he had a, like an old gas lantern tattooed on his chest right over his sternum he was so cool i did not like him very much because he was so cool but he was that classic outlier like who what who has that oh yeah exactly and i feel it's important to say that neither position is right depending uh on who you are either one of these positions could be an avenue of destruction, or either one of these positions could actually be transformed by Jesus to bring something good to the world, but it it will rely on the transformation of Jesus. And these are really interesting because what you see at play in the world is you see a, a, a globalist rise over time where countries get richer, and as they become richer, they want to think in an abstract way more often, 
where people don't view themselves predominantly as Coloradans. They view themselves predominantly as people, right? Like a college campus, they're not like, I am a Texan. Hmm. They're like, I am a whatever the abstract identity is. Hmm. And so therefore, a person on the other side of the world is no less valuable than my neighbor. Right, which that's fine. That's a good sentence. Yeah, it's right. It's, it's fine, but both of these have like a destructive form. What nationalism does is it goes, there is a way of life that is valuable in and of itself that we want to preserve. And nationalism, just turn on country radio, where everything that's awesome or potentially redeemable about a strain of American culture is represented. Pickup trucks, rural America, how fun it is to spend an evening just sitting by a lake without anything else to do, just watching the water. Uh, Dogs, crickets, blue jeans, pontoon boats, 4th of July. Yeah, and you have a deep streak of this. <laughs> a deep streak of what? We're like appreciation if you, if you music. Yeah, maybe, but no. if you get on a pontoon boat, something happens. Yes. Oh, we were driving through town and saw one that was called the Duchess, literally like wow. stenciled on the side of a pontoon boat, and I was like, "This, everything about this is perfect." Yeah, it is awesome. Like driving a beat up pickup truck uh, down a dirt road is. Sort of objectively fun. Have you noticed, too, how much, like, loyalty is represented in country music? Like, to a partner. And if the story is about one that wasn't loyal, it's about how they, like, killed that person. Wow. I actually hadn't thought of that. Yeah. it's Usually the the women singers are the ones that are killing the... You're totally right, but they both show, like, a really... Carrie Underwood. It's Carrie Underwood. Yeah. Do you want to come on the podcast, Carrie? (laughs) Uh... (laughs) They both show an incredible high value to loyalty, either by talking about, I'm still with my high school girlfriend. Or Or I still love her. Or by, if you broke up, it's devastating or if something happened. Yep. So the interesting thing is that, like, the, the bedrock of a nationalist impulse and the part that is, right, you can see the redeemable part in this goes... Our culture contributes something unique to the world that's worth saving. Is it bad that I want to be able to have like little audio cues like in this whole episode and be able to give you an example of, have you heard Childish Gambino's new album? No. It's like the college kid on campus. Like it is so cracked. It's insane. Like you think you're having some kind of musical seizure, but it's like, it's also very cool and... Anyway, I just thought about playing some of that for you right now, but it would probably make your head explode. Now we're going to get to the redeemable and destructive part of that as well. Yeah. Uh, hopefully, poem we just go like, okay, guys, let me just, I'm going to forecast the tension that's building is that what, what happens over time is both of these parties try to use hard power to influence the other one, try to make the other one do something, and they both see stopping the other party as more important than their own constructive agenda which is where things melt down. But back to nationalism, yes. back to this tribal thing. Think of Oban and think of in Scotland and 
coastal Scottish culture and how we love going there because there's nothing that's quite like it anywhere else in the world. Mm-hmm. Totally. Oh, my gosh. You go into those towns, and all of a sudden you feel like it doesn't matter if you actually have any relatives there. You think that you do, and you want to find yourself a greatly knitted wool sweater and a pipe in your mouth and yes. like jump on a boat and just start fishing. You're like, I don't know how to do any of these things, but I feel like I need to. And you just... If you're me, you want to be included. We were in a bar and everyone was singing the song and Oban. Yeah. And it went, oh, there's like there's a value of a certain kind of song. There's a value of a certain kind of male interaction. There's a value of a certain kind of manual labor. And they're all very unique. I think it's actually what, what people imagine when they want to go travel internationally. You you don't think of going and visiting the Eiffel Tower and sort of always being on the outside. You imagine having a a sandwich or a crepe and a glass of wine down some avenue where you can see the Eiffel Tower behind you. We met like Oban. We loved that one evening. It was rainy because it's Scotland, and we're in a pub. We're there. You kind of want to be. You want to be a part of the thing, even when you go travel. Nobody wants to go and stand on the outside of any of those tribes. Yes. This is what's so, so we're going to, we're coming up on the, the important inflection points. There's a very boring book called The Authoritarian Dynamic by Karen Stenner. Sorry, Karen. And or Dr. who Stenner. for sure does not know we exist. <laughs> Doctor, Dr. Stenner, thank you for writing an important book that it will probably not enjoy a wide readership. But other people are reading it and, you know seeing the incredible value of what she identifies. And it's basically this. It's that nationalists don't freak out until there's a perceived threat to their tribe. Mm-hmm. And so there's a, there was a study done where people from opposite ends of the political spectrum were given fake news articles. All the news articles were made up about immigration in their country. And one set of articles was about immigrants not necessarily becoming American, but just like meshing in with the fabric of the town. And it's like, you know, people from Springfield are loving going to the new Mexican restaurant. And it's so great to get to be a part of the community here, says, you know, Alejandro. And then they were served a collection of articles that were like, Sorry, I'm making my Lady Gaga song. Don't say my name, don't say my name, Alejandro. Wow, keep going. (laughs) It's fine. I think those are the only words in that song, right? I think it is. Ale Alejandro, Ale Alejandro. Then they were served articles that were like immigration, like an influx of new cultures is actually taking away or consuming the culture that was already here. And after they, after they read the articles, they had to answer questions on, like, is immigration good or bad? Mm-hmm. And the amazing thing is they answered them the same way, right and left, answered the questionnaires the same way when there wasn't a threat to the existent community. But when the nationalists read an article that was like, uh, you know, is this the end of bluegrass, the influx of rap in Tennessee, uh, it would flip this switch and they would actually express 
like even more uh, conservative and potentially foreigner immigration opposed xenophobic positions than they had before and go like, no. And what Karen Stenner identifies is she's like, there's nothing inherently racist or authoritarian or patriarchal inside nationalist tribes. But when they're hit with a an existential threat, they veer authoritarian. They veer potentially racist. They veer potentially patriarchal. I think the study is really fascinating because it confirms some of what I believe about human interaction on the internet these days, where the internet is just this faceless void of usually hate and disagreement that doesn't go down in person. And so those news stories of, look at these human beings participating in your town. It's like, oh, great. I'm so pro human beings. But then as soon as it switches to, and you are losing your way, your thing that you value, it go, it switches back. Like that's just this, like, oh, you are a human being with a fight, flight, freeze response, just like any other, except that what you hold on to more strongly is this, this identity, this, this connection. And when that's threatened, like, okay, okay. So some mercy here for that, but to go, oh, this does confirm that it's not all same response, same response, same response that the news these days seems to indicate. If you read either side of that spectrum, like it, it just, feel so polarized that a study like that is actually very comforting to me, if that makes sense, to go, no, no, you actually don't, nobody hates another human being unless they've totally embraced evil. Polarizing also, it was a word I was thinking of last week, and I went, we've also gotten accustomed to that radical word of being driven to the polls, Mm -hmm. of being like, I wonder how people would feel if instead of saying polarizing, we said, we've developed a political environment that turns people into extremists mm. and went, because that's what... That's the same thing. That's the same thing. Right. Uh, and go, and why is that? Why have we made people into extremists? Let's unpack this dyna- dynamic a little further, because you'll see, you know, if the nationalists are, they kind of freak out when there's a threat to the community, you may come back and go, well, why don't we just explain that we can all get along, right? Isn't getting along the s- solution? And go not outside of the kingdom of God because only one restaurant is going to go on a certain street corner. And should that be an American restaurant or a Tibetan restaurant? And only one concert is going to take place at the town music hall. And should that be German accordion influence? Should that be rap? Like there is, there is, there are real exclusions that people are identifying and having to grapple with. Right. And here's what happens to globalism. I'll just say that outside of Jesus, both impulses in humanity turn violent. And the the violence of nationalism, when they're hit with an existential threat, you get the populist rise that you've seen around the world, which is like, okay, well, we're going to clamp down. We're going to use hard power, meaning we're going to use physical force and the force of law to protect our community. And we're going to find the most intense version of our community to put in power. And, you know, people point to, like, the outlier that is Donald Trump. But actually, (laughs) Trump 
was one, it remains, one part of something that was happening all the way around the world, uh, which was a nationalist response to the way the nationalist-globalist interaction was going. What the globalists do when they go, we have expressive, rational values, we don't have a lot of existential threats, we don't have a lot of survival threats, so it's not as important to protect tribal norms, which relate to existential threats. It's more important to let people be people and make great art and embrace variety. What eventually happens when that project is not, uh, when space is not made for that, is that you get, among other things, like cancel culture. Well, yeah, I mean, it's this idea that really blew up last year. Um, and it's essentially that if you are saying something that others at the time don't value or appreciate, that you could get in trouble for that. And this is where, like, so much of our moment, we've talked about this before, but the the Me Too movement, the politically correct movement, which I don't think we actually have identified, but like very much was a thing, brought, I've talked about this before, that the ethics class that Susie was in, uh, in her master's program, to a standstill. And I think we're going to see now around the justice and inequality and violence, and just uh, however you want to boil down or summarize this current moment, uh, you see inevitably parts of it turn into a witch hunt though it begins with really real how do you how do you say all this sentence without actually participating in any side of it it is so difficult so cancel culture is the idea that you know let's let's just back up to last year um if you push back against some of like the me too or the politically correct things you by pushing back are not for it and therefore you are a target and you could get you could lose your job there's plenty of cases of this. Um, that's going on this year as well. Whether it's from a university, a newspaper, it doesn't matter. Like you, people can go back in your social media accounts, find things where you were not aligned with the thought of the moment, and potentially lose your career. And that threat, regardless of how high a percentage it is, whether it's happened one time or a thousand times. Some people in fear latch on to the fact that it's happened. And so you get, again, that extremist conversation going on of me, like what happened to free speech? What happened to me having a different opinion? What happened? Like I, I should be able to push back against this thing. And you're like, okay, okay, hang on. So the Me Too movement, a just in so many cases of abuse and harassment in the entertainment industry and in businesses, you're like, that's something that needs to be addressed. And then you get a few cases of it being abused as a way of trying to take people down where there wasn't actually legitimate cases. You go, okay, so does that ruin the entire point? Or does this, me pushing back against those cases mean I'm now a target? So that, that, that's, it's a very, like, I would never go on social media and talk about this kind of thing. It, it, it's a It's a conversation that, reads a moment of fear and it silences voices and and it's dangerous apart from the kingdom where you go 
uh, nationalists, you can display God's heart and nature by calling attention to the non-replaceable value of particular people and places. You can become avenues of horrible destruction when you lack compassion, Mm. when you veer towards self-righteousness, when you decide uh, that you are right and it's important to intensely impose your whatever um, and go, I'm sorry, you are ordered in <laughs> to love the stranger and seek the welfare even of an oppositional empire. Like the tale of the Good Samaritan is like, uh, make space at your table for your worst enemy and treat them with honor, okay? So there is this embrace thing. Go, globalists, you reveal the kingdom of God in actually the incredible sympathy and patience to have conversations across cultures and to actually want to build something that's never been seen before. Like preservation and innovation uh, are really interestingly like uh, two sides of the human creative project and go, and globalists, you go overboard when you get so frustrated with not being listened to that, that you decide that it's more important to get your project done than to keep engaging the oppositional party. And we have a situation right now as these things hit each other. And it's not like they're hitting each other in 2020 or they hit each other in 2016 to go, these things, these things have been building since for sure the Second World War. But actually, you know, the idea of people having national identities is several hundred years old. But let's just say for about a hundred years, these forces have been like, which are as opposed as capitalism and communism have been hitting each other. And people now believe that it's more important to stop the opposing party than to create inside their own, which is a really dangerous, you know, some of the listeners here remember the culture wars uh, in the 90s where like a majority of white evangelical Christianity decided it had to like wade into the public sphere and make sure that Christian principles became laws and make sure that media like depicted values that were described in the Bible. And it was, it was bad. And to go, that's not the same as building more culture, which is the way that culture changes. It doesn't change by competing over culture. It goes like, make something incredible. Like, uh, make a church whose like flourishing family environment is something that your whole city starts to talk about and people become curious. The amazing thing in the election between Donald and Hillary, let's all go back there, was I remember, I remember people on the right who were like, you know, I don't love Trump, but we have to stop Hillary. And there are people who were on the left who were like, I'm not sure about Hillary, but we have to stop Trump. And I went, it was actually most of the conversations I heard. Like most of them. Right? It's, yeah. It's just a crazy thing of like, it's so it's more important to prevent something happening than to make something happen. 
that's a very volatile, dangerous, heated moment to find yourself in where it's like, again, and it's the, it's more important to change other people than to receive the change of your own heart. The problem is you can't change other people. You can't stop that movement from happening. You can create inside your own sphere. So the trajectory is also towards like less impact, more anger, because when people are impotent, they get angry. So are you excited for uh, the political environment where we're going to be deciding between one uh, crazy old man and another crazy white old man to about who our president's going to be? I am so excited. And just looking at these tendencies to go, well, we have, we have the same thing happening where we have globalists and uh, the social justice movement and sort of the urban core like, like really operating in a way predominantly that's threatening towards the nationalists preserve the tribal values so they're going to they're triggering the authoritarian dynamic over and over and like and just go neither of these are the kingdom of god it's going to be crazy because even though the <laughs> this time the candidates look similar but the the anger in the in the separate visions of the world mm. is higher than it was in 2016 totally I mean, this whole podcast should have like the little tagging on it of learn that we're not making an argument for either side. This is like a, can you understand the motivation of both sides and how we've gotten to this moment? Particularly when you look at ideas of the way the world should look and the ways that the Christian sphere is losing the spiritual realm conversation to the secular sphere and it'd be like what a just what an interesting moment to be wading into when what we're called to do is to bring jesus walk in the physical and spiritual realm and be building these bridges between people you're like okay so you should be preparing a table where your enemy gets to sit that is a a very small bridge a table but it's a very powerful one the table as small bridge is the coolest symbol. <laughs> I'm like, wow. Uh, we, there's there's a company that could be started around that. <laughs> the, the those two wooden objects. I I would say also, yeah, it's the guys. There's a motif in the Gospel of John around blindness and seeing, where if you come to Jesus assuming you can see, you leave blind, and if you come knowing you're blind, you leave seeing, and go the. <laughs> The alternative to a material spiritual bind is Jesus. The alternative to a nationalist, globalist bind with, well, they're both some good and they're both some bad. And be like, no, no, no. Apart from Jesus, they're both all bad. And nonetheless, like, because the image of God remains in humanity, you can see God who is loving and good in them um, and go, the alternative is Jesus. You can't assume like me. Uh, this is my big thing. It's like, I'll assume that there's a third position that's educated, well-read, that's outside. Which means you're not a target and you get to kind of mediate and navigate in and save. Which means that I'm just trying to get people to know and do the right things, which is what the law is. And anyone who's under the law is under a curse and the curse is death. And going like, so I don't want to bring death to the world 
So the alternative is be like, seek Jesus. He, you <sighs> come to him going like, I can't make heads or tails. I think it's just head or tail singular. Head or tail. I don't know what's going on. Like, you have to give me spiritual perspective and mm. vision to understand my moment. I just want to, I want to name a couple other things in brief. Uh, because if we, if we kept unpacking these, these global trends. Eventually you'd have to pay us $1,000 and we just give you an associate's degree. Exactly. I wonder if we could become accredited. <laughs> uh, from what I've heard, it's a horrible experience. Uh, well, we have to have like a certain number of books in your library. I remember that. Um, hey, find and talk to someone who's founded a school and just discover how weird and arbitrary the rules are. That's the takeaway for that one. <laughs> one other thing that's interesting uh, – Something I meant to say in the nationalist, globalist thing is where you go like, wait a second, many people, if becoming globalist is largely linked to societies becoming wealthier and existential threats going down, then why so many, you know, like urban college students and they're not that wealthy and go, oh, that's interesting. Well, one of the things on uh, college students not being wealthy is uh, measuring how much they earn versus how much they've spent and going, I know, you have a weird, you have a weird position, but if you have a $20,000 education, you're quite wealthy. You've spent $20,000 even if you didn't have it. That makes you a rich person. And that makes you like sort of, I was going to say, yeah, I'm going to go with susceptible to. That puts you inside the camp of what happens to cultures as they become wealthy. There are, I feel like this is like a Q&R episode where we only answer two questions because every one of these forces could, could actually be its own episode. And I would go like, okay, other things that I would want someone to understand, because I, this was sort of motivated by going, hey, we've built a world that's much more fragile than it looks and much more volatile than it looks. And people are realizing that because this moment is revelatory. COVID has shown us just how precarious our world is, even though it has the impression of being stable and people are freaking out a little bit. We were going to sort of unpack why that is. You'd have to go into, there's an economics one that, you know, post a resource in the show notes that goes, what we've done with where value is and how it moves is just the craziest thing ever where you have more value on the world than you have underlying assets. So there's more money than there is stuff in essence. And how did that happen? And how does that make a world that's really precarious? Uh, there's the one that is the... The way that technological change, there's a book called The Future is Faster Than We Think by two authors who always sort of disturb me uh, by their commitment to their positivist worldview. Uh, but just, but they're right in this case and go, you would, to understand our moment, you would really have to 
explore the rate of technical change and how that tends to affect the people who are using those technologies over time. But where I wanted to land this episode was with, uh, hey guys, people are asking the same questions they've always asked, and those questions become embodied in the movements that we were talking about. And these are the ones I would summarize. I would go, uh, people are asking, am I lovable? Which gets linked to, am I protected? Am I safe? And the interesting thing in this, you know, the movement for racial justice and the conservative backlash is that if you accept what we say about nationalism, there's, they're asking the same question, like, do I have value? Is my community worth protecting? Crazy. Mm. Uh, there would be the next one that is, am I culpable and therefore under judgment? And that more than we can get into now. Mm. And then there's... <laughs> the gospel say yes, and there's a solution to that. Yes. What's the solution? <laughs> Jesus. Uh, and then there's like the one that is, am I meaningful? Uh, does my life have sort of purpose and direction? And it's easy to see how that gets picked up in the nationalist globalist thing. But even to go, oh yeah, but the... The materialist spiritual thing is people trying to answer the same question, which is, how do I change the world? And picking different dimensions of the world to focus on and go, the gospel speaks to all of those. Mm -hmm. Yeah, my hope is that if you didn't know about some of these categories, which I'm putting myself in that camp, it's helpful to hear. It's helpful to hear about where they came from. Uh, and to see maybe which camp you've fallen into of the four that we threw out there and to see that the ways that maybe you were trying to bring change apart from Jesus or to find safety apart from Jesus. And, and it's come back to something you said earlier in the podcast, Blaine, of every one of these categories can and will do immense harm apart from Jesus. And as they try to win their war against the other they will do violence and damage and that the solution isn't to do them better, but to partner with Jesus in the ways that you are uniquely made and you, the way that you uniquely see the world. And you get to bring that and him to the table. 